What's up, everybody? Fred Ricciani, the Sports Courier Podcast. We have right here on the line a good friend of ours, a man that has more job titles than Jushin Thunder Liger has accolades. We're talking to Paul the Mauler Lazenby, actor, pro wrestler, fighter, stuntman, mo-capper, you name it, he's done it. Paul, how's it going? Fantastic, man. Thanks for having me back. Thanks for coming on. I know you just got back from a long, fun trip in Japan. Once again, you got to enjoy the full extent of New Japan Pro Wrestling's Wrestle Kingdom week. Wow. How you feeling? I'm good now. I mean, I had a bit of a nightmare trip back with uh, over 12 hours of layovers. So it was a 27-hour trip door-to-door from Osaka because I, after at the very tail end of the trip, I, I went from Tokyo to Osaka to go reunite with Masakatsu Funaki, who tore my bicep in a pancreas ring back in 1997 and, and had a great time with him and his family. So, uh, yeah, now I'm finally, I can finally say I'm recovered. Awesome. And the big deal around Wrestle Kingdom, of course, was the uh, double championship match between Naito and Okada. Naito became the, the double champion. But it was also a lot of hype surrounding Jushin Thunder Liger's final match. Now, I had the pleasure of meeting Jushin Liger, interviewing him a number of years ago, watching him live. You got to watch his final pro wrestling matches ever live. What was that whole experience like? I, I got to be honest, man. I, I, I had a lump in my throat uh, both nights. And then uh, at New Year Dash, uh, which is the traditional event that follows uh, Wrestle Kingdom the night after, which uh, wasn't at Corken Hall for the first time. It was at uh, Oto Ward Gymnasium, which is another great venue. But uh, it was it was very sobering, man, to realize that you know, I've been in the pro wrestling business since 1991, and Liger's been—he uh, was a, a prominent figure in the business on the first day that I, I started becoming a pro wrestler. And, and so, you you can kind of start thinking that a person like that is going to be around forever, and Liger can still go you know, at 54, 55 years old. But you know, to see that guy bring down the final curtain, man, it it really does hit you right here. A lot of people have talked about maybe splitting WrestleMania into two nights because, let's face it, seven, eight-hour-long shows are really hard to get through, to say the very least. New Japan, for the first time, split Wrestle Kingdom amongst two nights. As somebody that was there live, would you would you say the experiment was a success? Yes, I would say so. Uh, I, you could still knock it down to one night, but then uh, you'd have to... Then everybody wouldn't get to play. So if you want to include that that quantity of talent in a show... I think WrestleMania has definitely reached that point where, you know, how do you stay engaged for that long? The first year I went to Wrestle Kingdom was the year that Kyle O'Reilly and Adam Cole had their Ring of Honor championship match on the show. Uh, that's the main reason I went because I've known Kyle forever and I've known Adam for quite a bit. So I wanted to go see them at the Dome. That was about a six-hour show, and, and I was definitely past the point of burnout by the time it, it got to the end. I mean, thankfully, it was Omega Okada on the main event, so that'll rejuvenate anybody no matter how tired you are. But... But um, it's too long. You know, six hours is too long for a show. So uh, I think that it was a good idea to break it up into two, and I think WrestleMania should follow suit. And Wrestle Kingdom did have over 70,000 fans combined. I think the first night had around almost 40,000 people, and then the second night had closer to around 30,000. I mean, sounds like a huge success, but is there anything that you saw that New Japan could do better going forward? Um, I don't know. I, I believe it was a legit 40,000 uh, paid on the first night. So, yeah, definitely the experiment was a success. Um, I know that uh, I, I had a chance to talk to uh, Harold May, the company president, backstage a little bit. He's got some great ideas with regards to merchandising and things like that, which I think is uh, a wide open door for New Japan. Uh, they've already they already do aggressively pursue merchandising, but he's got some new ideas that I think will carry them even further forward in that direction. Uh, 
I don't know, man. I mean, it's easy to sit back and pick apart the card. If I were to point at one thing, it might be uh, being a little bit more aggressive with establishing time restrictions on matches. Uh, but that, that's that's a minor wrinkle. You know, overall, I, I was very impressed with what I saw with regards to uh, the, the organization and the, and the promotion of both shows both nights. You know, I really dug it. Um, of course, it's, it's in Japan, so you're going to appreciate a show that much more because the fans show up to appreciate the show. And uh, that that was one thing that it's uh, it's inescapable when you start getting more North American attention. But uh, I I did notice, and this is completely beyond New Japan's control. Uh, they're suffering for their success in this way. But I did notice uh, complaints online from North American fans who very much have the Japanese fan attitude of showing up to appreciate the show and watch the show and enjoy it as a fan because they had noticed some of their own were like taking their shirts off and trying to start their own chance and leaving garbage on the ground, which you don't do in Japan. Fans clean up after themselves in Japanese shows and uh, noticing kind of the downside of, of, of the North American fandom creeping into Japanese fandom. And again, there, there's a lot of great North American fans too. I'm not saying that our side of the, the ocean is bad and theirs is, is, is universally good, but there's a lot we can learn from Japanese fans, you know, and uh, they, they buy in on a level that North American fans haven't done for quite a while. And so that's why I love to see see uh, shows in Japan. I mentioned online that during the Jushin Liger uh, retirement ceremony at New Year Dash, they had a 10-bell salute. And that place with thousands of people in it was dead silent through the entire thing. There was nobody going into business for themselves. Nobody trying to start their own da-da-da-da chant, which I'm beyond sick of. Nobody trying to bring the attention on themselves. At that moment, that ceremony was about Liger, and everybody participated in that and appreciated him and respected him for what he was. And so, we could do with a little bit more of that. You know, for everything that's, for all the things that are great about North American fans, they could take a page out of Japanese fan fans um, book in, in that respect. And uh, so, I, I definitely love that about going out over there as I have done every year. Now, Hiroshi Tanahashi. He had a classic match of his own against your longtime good friend, Chris Jericho. I watched that match. It was fantastic. They didn't do anything crazy, but it was just two masters at work. As somebody that had a front row seat to that, I mean, how can you describe that masterpiece we saw? It was so great. and It, it always has a little bit of an additional element for me because you know, my very, very first day in the business, uh, I met Landstorm and Chris Jericho, my first day at wrestling school. Uh, I think I met Lance the night before as well, but like Chris was the second guy, my second oldest friend in the business. So to think, yeah, I, I met this guy at a bowling alley in Calgary in 1991 when nobody knew who Chris Jericho was. And now I'm sitting here at ringside with his son. Last year, I was sitting here with his dad watching him at the Tokyo Dome just tear the place apart. It just it, uh, it increases my appreciation of the match. But taking that off the table. And this is something that I told his son, Ash, right before the match started. It's like, you really are, as you said, watching two masters at work. You take the level of talent that Jericho's got and, and his mind for the business and his abilities. And then in a lot of ways, you know, he's got a counterpart in Ta Tanahashi that way. These guys are, are not just flippers and flyers, and there's nothing wrong with that, but they're storytellers. They're masters, psychologists, and storytellers in the wrestling business. And you get them both together, and then you, you turn them loose on the biggest stage in Japanese wrestling. You have a, a right to expect something epic, and that's exactly what we got. 
It was fantastic. And Jericho, as I mentioned before, a master, a wrestling genius, as is Tanahashi. And I, I think both guys are smart, not just because of what they did in the match, but how they built up the match, bringing the AEW world title into the mix. And to the best of my knowledge, there's still some frosty relations with New Japan Pro Wrestling and AEW, but Jericho, to his credit, put everybody on the spot. He essentially said, hey, it's good for... I'm not a, I'm not a stupid businessman. I, I haven't been successful in the business for 30 years by doing stupid business. New Japan should work together with AEW and, and vice versa. But it looks like right now, at the time we're recording this, New Japan is going to stay working with Ring of Honor, which is fine. That's great for both companies. But I still feel like there's be, there's money left on the table. Could you see in 2020 New Japan and AEW eventually, finally working together? They're going to have it if it has to be. I don't want to say forced, but they're going to have a connection with AEW whether they like it or not because of Jericho's uh, relationship with AEW. And and uh, I have to take my hat off to Tony Khan for this one thing is uh, you know it, uh, when I look at AEW, there's some things that you know if I was going to put my promoter hat on, I might suggest change and some things that I think they're doing very well. And one thing that that has surprised me is Tony Khan's openness, immediate openness to, you know, have AEW have a presence in other organizations, uh, which I think is a very good thing. I think it's very heads up play on his part and, uh, you know, his willingness to have Jericho wear the AEW belt to the ring, you know, which was, it surprised me. You know, I was, I was in Jericho's locker room before the match and I saw him pull the belt out of his bag and put it on under his t-shirt and he's got this, this smile on his face. Like he said, yeah, well, Wait till, wait till they see me pull my shirt off. And it did. It got a huge reaction. Totally agree. And we should also note, too, that New Japan Pro Wrestling has launched New Japan Wrestling of America. And that's a completely different division of New Japan that's primarily going to run in the States. And without being on Access TV, who knows why that relationship dissolved. You know, they're going to need some exposure. They're going to need some help. And Ring of Honor, with all due respect to them, those local Sinclair stations can only provide so much exposure for them. Mm-hmm. And you brought up New Japan of America. I have to... I, I had to kick myself first because I should know them all by name by now. But there's there's three standouts, uh, American standouts, American Young Lions uh, from the New Japan LA Dojo. And, and uh, I've had the opportunity to watch them work on the LA show and, and then in Japan. Those guys are freaking animals. So New Japan definitely has a benefit there where they've got some American talent under their umbrella who are solely theirs, who they are developing. And other foreign talent, too, from other countries. And I just think that uh, uh, that definitely needs to be exploited. And I, I want to shout those guys out and like pay attention to the young lions on both sides of the ocean. Uh, on, on the Japanese side, uh, Yota Tsuji, uh, who I had no idea was the twin brother of a friend of mine, a stuntman Shota Tsuji, who works here in Vancouver until about a year ago. But Yota's a badass. And, and uh, there was a six-man tag uh, at New Year Dash between Yota and two other Japanese young lions against three American young lions that that very much came across to me like a fight, which is something that can be lost in the modern environment with the emphasis on on choreography that sometimes is a good thing and sometimes detracts from the product. And in this case, I, it was it was one of the better matches I've seen in a long time between two six man teams of just developing talent because it, it came across so scrappy and, and they're so young and athletic and aggressive. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that uh, New Japan does have some great American talent that can become big American stars and help them further to establish a beachhead over here. We asked this question last year. We got some flack for it because there's some weirdos that think these things need to be kept separate. But now that New Japan Pro Wrestling's company has acquired Stardom, which is the top women's organization in Japan, taking away the TV contracts, which prevent a closer relationship, 
In an ideal world, do you think New Japan should still have a women's division? I think so. Right? There's, there's enough women's talent out there. Uh, whether that be uh, regular stardom matches on New Japan shows or whether that be an actual New Japan women's division, uh, I, I think it's inevitable. I mean, there's the female talent in, in pro wrestling combat sport is undeniable. It's what comedian Bill Burr, uh, he was uh, being interviewed once by uh, a female journalist and she said, do you think we need more women in show business? Women? And, and Bill kind of rolled his eyes and went, look, just be undeniable and you will get where you need to be. You know, it, you might have unfair obstacles put in front of you, but everybody does. You'll get where you need to be. And we saw that in mixed martial arts where I remember when I was fighting with Pancras in the 90s, I asked one of the executives, are, you, are we ever going to see uh, women's fights in Pancras? And he laughed at me. Now you do all the time. Uh, UFC, Dana White, it wasn't that long ago, said you'll never see women in the octagon. Now women are a prominent presence in the octagon. You know, thanks to the efforts of Jeff Osborne in, in pushing women's MMA. You know, he saw it before anybody did, is that you can't deny these women. They're badasses. They're savages, and they deserve a spot in combat sport. Same thing in professional wrestling. So... I think women definitely, the top tier female talent definitely deserve a presence in New Japan. And um, you know, I, I think you could have that either way, whether it's a strong stardom presence within New Japan or whether you establish their own division as New Japan talent. Either way, I just want to see them there. One guy you've wanted to see on the national stage for a while, finally got there after all these years, Dr. Luther on AEW. He's a good friend of yours. A lot of younger fans are asking, who the hell is this guy, the deathmatch legend? For anybody that hasn't witnessed the chaos that is Dr. Luther, can you just describe him a bit? Yeah, and you know what, man? I, I um, With due respect to the AEW commentary team, I really do think the ball was dropped when it came to his reveal. So much more could have been done in that contained period of time to get this guy over to the fans. And um, unfortunately, it just, you know, it, the opportunity was lost in that respect, but I think it'll be regained. Uh, I think that Luther is going to get over regardless because. He is another one of my oldest friends in the business. Um, I met him very, very, very early on in my training at Hart Brothers. And, uh, in fact, I got my first uh, my first welcome to the business kit potato from Dr. Luther, that bastard that I still have to pay him back for. But uh, he is a guy that has been – he's kind of like a Nigel McGuinness figure where he was just so great, better than most people at the top tier, and yet would just slip through the cracks consistently time and time and time again. But just like Nigel was undeniable and finally found his his secure spot at the at the top as a commentator, uh, you know, after after a great run as new, uh, Ring of Honor champion, Doctor Luther at this late stage of his career, you know, he uh, he's finding that he's finally got a, a a spot a shot at the top in North America. You know, he had the majority of his career success before now, very very early on in his career. He was a deathmatch pioneer in FMW, but also a great worker that could go with anybody, which is overlooked. He went to South Africa and, and you know, he not only wrestled in the promoted and wrestled in the first barbed wire matches ever held in South Africa, but also had some great, great, great matches with talent over there. Um, my best match of my entire career was with him in Durban, South Africa. And that wasn't because of me. It was because he was carrying me. So Dr. Luther is a tremendous talent, a top-tier talent who can, who can wrestle multiple styles, who has a great mind for the business and a great great mind for psychology. And just for this reason or that reason, you know, just slipped through the cracks. You know, he was on WWE's radar. He was on WCW's radar. And just circumstances didn't work out in his favor. He had tremendous bad luck uh, along different stages of his career. But now he's finally getting a shot. 
And, uh, you know, he's, it's common knowledge. He's very close with Chris Jericho, but I want to emphasize that, um, you know, I, I don't think I'm letting the cat out of the bag here by saying that I know for sure that he wasn't given a gift by Jericho. He was given an opportunity where, where I know Jericho was in his corner, but I know that Luther had to audition several times. He was not given a spot. He was given a chance at a spot. And he earned that spot by going in and killing his auditions. And I think he's been doing a great job in the very, very early stages of his AEW career. And I, I can't wait to watch him develop in that company. Dr. Luther's not the only older dude that's still kicking some ass in the ring. You got a chance to hang out backstage in WWE in recent weeks. Rey Mysterio is the guy you ran into. Just unbelievable. The dude is in his mid-40s and might legitimately still be the best babyface in all of professional wrestling. What's the I, secret? Uh, I don't know. And I asked him that. You know, Ray is such a great dude, too. One of the nicest people I've ever met in my life. Uh, Ray's one of those kind of uh, one of those guys that if you hear that somebody else doesn't like Ray, that's a comment on that person. It's not a comment on Ray. It's like, well, if you don't like Ray, you've got to be because he's just such a great dude. But what an amazing talent. And I even asked him because, you know, it's, it's he's had, what, nine, ten knee surgeries already. And I said, dude, how have you done this? You know, Robbie Lawler did it in UFC, too. How have you had this late career resurgence? How are you outperforming the Ray Mysterio of five, six, seven years ago? And he laughed. He said, I have no idea. So I just I just kept at it, and and at some point my body started responding again to all the rehab work that I'm doing, and and I, I managed to ride out the the physical rough patch, and and yeah, now he's admittedly long in the tooth, and he's not the Rey Mysterio of 15, 20 years ago, but he's also kicking all kinds of ass and just just really outperforming expectations, and, and I'm really happy to see it. Couldn't happen to a nicer guy. Now you're a nice guy as well, but you're an absolute badass. I'm not calling you old, but you're somebody that's been doing this for. A long time, and every time I'm on Instagram, yeah, yeah. I, I every time I'm on Instagram, I see guys like Edge and CM Punk and all these other combat sports celebs in, in awe of your badassness. I mean, you're deadlifting, you're doing squats. I mean, what is your secret? Don't stop. <laughs> there is a genetic component. I like to call it the flair gene. You know, Ric Flair ran his body so hard for so long, and just uh, what Steve Austin even said. He said, not fighting wise, just in in terms of what your body can withstand. He said, Flair is the toughest guy in, in wrestling history, in his opinion. And uh, I, I think I've benefited a little bit from that, but most of it is just don't stop. Um, especially when you start getting into later life, uh, you got to keep that momentum going. And, and if you haven't generated it, do what it takes to generate it, and then keep it. Keep training. Don't stop. Don't quit. And in my case, even you know, I've, I've had episodes of uh, months-long episodes of, of health challenges and things like that, injuries and other other health challenges. But I did what I could. You know, there was a time where um, I, a few years ago, I, I got uh, um, a parasite that was killing me. And uh, so I just walked the stairs of my building, you know, my my uh, my apartment complex. I just walked the stairs up and down. That's all I could do. But I did it and eventually got back to being in better health again. So the last few years has been great. My body's been responding. And, you know, I'm, I'm looking at maybe returning to powerlifting competition next year. And um, also, uh, yeah, you know, still keeping up with the MMA stuff and. Uh, it always brings to mind something that a, a buddy of mine, Bill Mahood, Bill the Butcher Mahood, who's a, a, an MMA fighter that fought into his 40s. And somebody asked him once, uh, four days after one of his fights, he was back doing road work. And they said, dude, why don't you take the full week off? And he said, because when you get to be older, um, fitness is like pushing a car. If you keep it up, it's easy. But if you stop and try to restart, it's a lot tougher. So, um, you know, like Carl Gott said, 
you know, when you're young, you should train. When you're old, you must train. And that's my attitude. Good advice. Now, I'm assuming you also aren't scarfing down cheeseburgers either, right? Once a week. I, I have a great diet coach named uh, Christine Wallace, who's an extremely high-level uh, physique competitor. Uh, one of the smartest things I did was turned my diet uh, over to her because I don't, I don't have a great deal of dietary knowledge. I remember way back in the day when I was choosing between bodybuilding and powerlifting, I looked at two things, genetics, which I don't have tremendously beneficial genetics for bodybuilding, and uh, also diet. It's like powerlifters eat whatever they want, sold. That's my sport. Uh, so, yeah, Christine uh, has blocked together a great diet for me. You know, it's um, There's a, a movie that will be released later this year called The Main Event on Netflix, and she got me down to about 227 pounds, which for me is really super shredded. Uh, and um, that's not something that I have the knowledge to do myself. But once a week, I have a three-hour window where I eat whatever I want. All bets are off. And, and I get disgusting with it. But it's just that one little pocket of time, and you do the, the right things through the rest of the week, and actually the negative becomes a positive because the way your body responds to all that bad food, but it's only within that little block of time, and you're doing everything else right. And I don't know the science of it, but it seems to be working for me, so I'm going to stay with it. Of course, you've been doing video game mocapping for years and years, all the way going back to Def Jam Vendetta. And now you recently left the Gears of War franchise after a stellar run. You did fantastic work mocapping as Marcus Venus for Gears of War Ultimate Edition, Gears of War 4, and Gears of War 5. And I'm not just saying this, but they're some of my favorite video games of all time. So congrats on the run. But why was now the time to leave the Gears franchise? Um, it was just time for me and the Coalition Studio to go our separate ways. They, they've got very hard and fast ideas about who gets the credit in their games. You know, that not a lot of people realize that the motion capture team does everything that you see on that screen. All the dialogue, all the stunts, all the acting, everything. And then the dialogue is redubbed by the voice talent. And I've got no grudge against the voice talent. You know, John DiMaggio has been doing the voice of Marcus Phoenix, I think, since the very beginning. He's kind of like Kane Hodder is to Jason Voorhees in the Friday the 13th franchise. No grudge against the voice talent, but when the studio has an attitude that the voice talent get 100% of the credit, including the credit for all of our work, um, that just got a bit to be a bit too much to take. And, you know, it eventually got to the point where they actually dressed up the voice talent in motion capture suits and shot a behind-the-scenes video and said, hey, look, here's the the gear is cast doing motion capture that left a kind of a bad taste in my mouth. So, you know, it's, it's their sandbox. It, it, they're entirely, entirely entitled to make their rules, but it's also my choice whether or not I want to continue to play in it. And, uh, I don't think it's too much to ask that when you put so much work into a character and, you know, I did so much research and talking to gears fans and years and years of making sure I brought the best possible Marcus portrayal to the game. And, and, you know, and I also did Paddock and, and Uncle Oscar in Gears 5. Uh, so it's, that was a lot of research and, and a lot of, you know, as, as much of my acting ability as I could bring to the, the fore. And to have credit for all of that deferred to somebody else just wasn't my thing. You know, I, I would rather go work for somebody else and, um, you know, try to generate some career momentum with my work where I can be recognized for that. So, you know, they might hand me this role over here because I did, did a decent job on that one. Um, so yeah, it just wasn't moving the needle in my career anymore. They've got their attitude about who they want to, how they want to apportion credit. And I didn't agree. So it was time to go. Look, you're, you're a, a well-respected guy within the industry. I think a lot of people that have been in similar positions as you will certainly appreciate the fact that you are speaking out and bringing to light this because 
as great as the video game industry is, you know, there's, there's still a lot that needs to change for the better, particularly with mocappers, particularly with developers, with animators, getting the animators. credit with, with the crunch time. I mean, it's unfortunately still a thankless business. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. And, uh, you know, when you're, when you're watching a video game, the majority of what goes into that performance is the mocap team. And then, you know, the voice actors, they, they dub their voices on and they're, they're talented actors too. And the animators, you know, they're the ones that bring the characters to the screen. But just, yeah, it, to me, it's kind of like if you, you, you took that Netflix show Money Heist and you said that the people who dub in the English dialogue, they're the only stars. And don't pay any attention to those Latin actors who actually did all the acting and all the dialogue and, and they made the show. And then we redub their voices and, and the voice talent. They're the only stars that that to me doesn't make sense. So, um, yeah, you know, I, I think that I'm hoping going forward that we see credit given where it's due, which means the voice actors continue to get the credit they're getting because they deserve it. I've done voice acting, a lot of voice acting myself. And so I, I realize that's that there's a lot more to that than people realize and, and a lot more talent required. But also the motion capture team and the animation team, I'm, I'm hoping that going forward on games, they get the credit they deserve, too. Absolutely. Now, Paul, on a lighter note, you still got a lot going on within this next year. You're always popping up everywhere. There's times where I'm just watching Netflix or HBO, and I'm like, "What? The? That's Paul Lazenby." So, what have you got going on in 2020? It's uh, in Vancouver. The industry continues to to be roaring along. So, uh, you'll be seeing me in a Fairly Brothers uh, production called The Now. Uh, I, I play a role in uh, in one of those episodes as well with uh, Dave Franco, uh, and it's. I love working with the Farrelly's. They're, they're, uh, I got to work with them. Uh, we worked with Peter Farrelly on uh, Louder Milk. Had a great role on that. And then I got to work with his brother Bobby on the now. So it's because uh, they, they trade episodes. And so the timing worked out great where I got to got to work with both of them. And I'll, I'll work with those guys anytime. You know, they're, they're responsible for like Dumb and Dumber and something about Mary and, and Kingpin and, and so many great movies, man. And so it, uh, it, it was a real thrill to work with them. I've been doing some work on Supernatural and, and a couple of other new shows. Uh, yeah, so it just it, it's picking up. Uh, I'm in talks now to possibly head out to Toronto and do some work. We'll see how that shakes out. But that would be cool because I'm from near Toronto. I'm from a town called Kitchener, which is about an hour from Toronto. And I've yet I've never worked there in 20 years in the industry. You know, it's every time my name comes up in relation to a Toronto project, uh, for whatever reason, I, there's been scheduling conflicts or just other people got chosen, and I've never gotten to work there. So it would kind of cool to be be cool to come home and and you know maybe uh, go see a few friends while I'm there uh, in my current capacity as as a guy that's actually made something of himself in the business since you know I left Kitchener as a pauper as a as a destitute. You know, so coming home. Uh, and, and working on a big production in Toronto would be pretty sweet. Paul, of course, you got the popular When We Were Bouncers series on Amazon Volumes 1 and 2. For anybody that hasn't had the pleasure of reading them yet, can you describe it? Yeah, it's, it's pretty straightforward. It's um, people who are prominent in their chosen field endeavor, where that, whether that be WWE stars and Hall of Famers, UFC stars and Hall of Famers, actors, comedians, uh, other prominent individuals, telling their stories of their days working as bouncers and security personnel. So, uh, you know, some of the most famous men and women uh, in the entertainment world and uh, and in the sporting world, you know, I, I'm always constantly chasing them down, trying to trying to get some stories. You know, you'll find Shayna Baszler in there if you're a WWE fan. You'll find WWE Hall of Famers like Boss Rutan and Don Fry and Pat Militich and 
uh, TV stars like Theo Rossi from Luke Cage and Sons of Anarchy and so on. I, I could go on for a long time, but uh, definitely um, it's good entertainment reading. Lots of short contained stories, you know, good reading for the bathroom or, or public transit if you take the bus to work. Currently working on volume three. I'm really, really excited about uh, about some of the names I've already gotten. Some very, very big names going into this one. Thanks to everybody who supported the series, including uh, S.E. Hinton. I always want to shout her out because it, it still blows me away that the author of The Outsiders is uh, has been a very vocal supporter of the series, and, and that's everybody supported, appreciated. But that one really caught me off guard, and, and uh, I I always want to shout her out because uh, I really appreciate her shouting me out on Twitter. Paul, always a pleasure. Follow him on Twitter at MahlerMMA and check out When We Were Bouncers on Amazon.